What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed? What would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of Global Swedish Design and stationery brand Kiki K, and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people to dream. Before I started Kiki K, I had a dream that I could bring Swedish design to the world to create beautiful products that bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to help you dream big. I want to create a global movement to inspire 101 million dreamers to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of the world's most inspiring people, exploring the powerful impact that dreaming has had on their lives. We'll be diving deep into the power of dreaming with real insights and ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. this week's episode of your dream life podcast our first guest episode for 2021 which i know you're going to love i was lucky enough to interview dr asim malholtra an award-winning cardiologist and co-author of the book the Piopo diet last year when he was here visiting australia and i was so inspired after chatting with him a world-leading expert in the prevention, diagnosis and treatment of heart disease, Dr. Asim is fast becoming known as one of the most influential cardiologists in the UK, leading the campaign against excess sugar consumption, or what he refers to as public health enemy number one. Founding member and advisor to the campaign group Action on Sugar, a charity group putting direct pressure on the government and food and drink industry to create a healthier food environment, Dr. Asim's bold approach has motivating leading academics, the media and politicians to take notice and make sugar reduction a health priority in the UK. Speaking with Dr. Asim was so inspiring, and as we are at the start of a fresh new year, I thought our chat would be perfect to share with you all. It's a great reminder of the importance of following your passions and never giving up, and it's full of ideas on how we can all start living a happier and healthier life through making healthy food and lifestyle choices. Keep listening to discover Dr. Asim's mission to create a healthier food environment for us all. The simple lifestyle choices of people living in a small Italian village called Pioppi who have an incredible life expectancy of 90. The importance of incorporating regular movement in your day, how a strong sense of community and meaningful relationships can help you reduce stress and live a healthier life. The importance of making food and lifestyle choices that improve our well-being and tips on how to do this how we are all work in progress and we should always continue striving for our dream lives. The importance of fighting for something you truly believe in, even if you face challenges along the way. The power of living in the present and remembering that whatever challenges you may be facing at the moment, these too will pass. And so much more. So let's get right into it. Hello, Dr. Asim, and welcome to our Dream Life podcast. I am so excited to have you here. I'm delighted to be here, Christina. 
I am so excited to speak with you today and we're so lucky to have you here in Australia and I can't wait for all the incredible wisdom and tips on healthy eating and lifestyle um, that I'm sure you're going to share with us. But before we dive into all that, I wanted to go back to your childhood and see, did you have any dreams as a child? Was there any dreams on what you wanted to do or who you wanted to become? I remember, you know, being a sort of six, seven, eight-year-old kid I had different dreams of one stage wanting to be a professional football player, you know, the standard things you think the kids of that age. I was quite active, I like sport. So, you know, there was those sorts of dreams that I had as a child. I think when I became a bit older, when I became a teenager, uh, that changed more towards me thinking of, you know, following a career in medicine. And that was partly inspired by uh, the death of my brother. So I was, uh, I had a brother uh, who was two years older than me and um, he suffered from Down syndrome, so he had special needs. Both my parents are retired general practitioners. My mum's passed away recently. So I, had a, I grew up in a family of doctors. So there was obviously that influence there as well. But he unfortunately uh, contracted a, just a, a regular virus, and, and in, in rare cases what can happen is um, a simple viral infection like the flu can actually, the immune system can attack your heart, and it's called myocarditis. So within a few days of him getting sick, he basically went into heart failure and died, had a cardiac arrest. And obviously as an 11-year-old, that's quite a, you know, you never forget that, that time. So that was my kind of initial inspiration, I think, to think about becoming a heart specialist. Mm. And that was always there in my mind at that point. And at that stage, you know, you think things like, you know, I wouldn't want this to happen to anybody else. What can I do in my career to prevent this sort of thing happening because it's quite traumatic obviously it's very traumatic to lose a to lose an older brother but even more so I think losing a child Mm -hmm. for my parents so that's kind of my uh, where my dream of becoming a cardiologist started and then you know I've had uh, one of my greatest inspirations has been my father and my father uh, his his story is also very interesting in the sense that he was a doctor that came over to the UK in the 70s practiced medicine and he was, uh, I found out later on, he was, um, you know, a very strong political activist. He was a student leader. You know, he was taking on the government for things that they were doing at the time that were perceived to be quite corrupt in India. And uh, it's interesting because my path in some of the things I'm doing now um, is not dissimilar to, to him, you know, making injustice visible. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's kind of what I do. So there's been kind of an evolution in what my dreams were and what they are. As an award-winning NHS cardiologist, excuse my swinglish, you have successfully motivated leading academics, the media and politicians to make sugar reduction a healthy priority in the UK. Your bold approach to challenging common health beliefs has led to leading medical professionals and social authorities from around the world to finally sit up and take notice, which is so incredible and so super inspiring. And absolutely not the easiest thing that you could do in life talking about dream life you have completely gone out of your comfort zone I'm I'm assuming but I'd love to talk to you about how you came to focus uh, on diet and sugar reduction my greatest inspiration that has kept me going in all of this campaigning that I've I've been doing over many years including highlighting the harms of of excess sugar consumption are my patients they inspire me Uh, every time I meet a patient you know I always learn something new and you know, my primary responsibility, my duty is to look after my patients, give them the best chance of being healthy, um, reassure them when they're anxious or they have fears, and also have a responsibility to, as a doctor to scientific integrity. And what my first observation was, Christina, 
that led me down this path was, you know, I qualified as a doctor in 2001 in Edinburgh. So, you know, we're now 2019, so almost eight, 18 years since I qualified. And I'd noticed after I qualified over a number of years that there was more and more stress on the system. There were more and more people coming in with chronic diseases. There was more obesity and more misery to go with it. So I was trying to understand what, what had gone wrong, how had this happened? At the same time also, I was noticing more stress on the system in terms of my colleagues, more stress because we're having to deal with more patients with more sickness. And uh, in the UK, we have, you know, uh, we have a, a wonderful, uh, I you know, fully believe in the system we have in the National Health Service where I believe that healthcare is a basic human right and it should be, people should be treated on their clinical need, not ability to pay. And I know there are different systems around the world, but for me, that's really important. So for, to sustain that, that really what, what has been an excellent system for many years, I, I realized that I needed to do my bit to try and investigate why were all these people coming in with obesity-related conditions, what was driving it. And when I started that journey, there was one epiphany moment. I've had probably several epiphany moments, but I was working as a cardiology specialist registrar, so a junior doctor in training in cardiology in Harefield Hospital, which is a, a world-famous uh, hospital. Uh, for treating heart disease and one night um, I'd woken up in the middle of the night I was on call and treated a, a patient with keyhole heart surgery something called a we put stents in to unblock arteries had a heart attack a chap was in his 50s so we saved him you know we, we did the, the procedure went very well very smoothly and the next morning on the ward round you know giving my usual advice to my patients about taking their medications religiously you know stopping smoking of their smokers um, interestingly smoking and this this is relevant to the sugar issue smoke reduction in smoking prevalence um, in the Western world has had the biggest impact in reducing heart disease deaths in the ma in the last few decades more than anything else so obviously very powerful intervention and this one patient I was speaking to um, when I'm giving him all this lifestyle advice he gets served a burger and fries and he says how do you expect me to change my lifestyle if you're serving me part of my language, the same crap that brought me here in the first place? And, you know, and he made a lot of sense because even me, and I, I've, I've also been someone, I would consider myself a foodie. You know, I love home-cooked food. My dad taught me to cook. I was cooking in medical school. I cooked I cook most days of the week if I can because I enjoy it. And I think I, I understand the importance of healthy eating. And that was not something that we were promoting in hospitals. In fact, the opposite. If anything, we're endorsing and promoting junk food, if you see the kind of stuff that's served there. Yeah. So that's where originally I started. And then when I looked further into the research about the dietary advice, because a lot of these foods were, um, I noticed, were full of, of, of excess sugar. And there was a lot of research coming out of America, and I was looking at all this data about the impact of sugar on health. And one thing I determined, uh, and then I wrote an editorial in the British Medical Journal in May 2013, is that the dietary advice in sugar in the UK and in Europe was in effect, you know, on labeling of, of um, packaged food, in effect, telling people to consume 22 and a half teaspoons of sugar a day. And in fact, that's what the average Brit was close to consuming. And the health, adverse health effects in the research were suggesting it started even, even now, we suggest even at two teaspoons and above, you start to get adverse health effects. So there was a huge discrepancy between what the data and science was telling us and what was actually happening in reality. So I exposed this to start with, and that's really started me on a journey to then this sort of realization that sugar was a real, I called it, I wrote about this in the Observer newspaper, was now public enemy number one in the Western diet. And um, I did everything I could to try and get this into mainstream media, you know, because my own understanding and knowledge of, you know, creating change 
Christina, is the more people that become aware of an issue, the more likely that change is going to happen. And at the, and the heart of this is I felt there was a gross injustice being committed on the public because they were being misled mm. about the foods they were eating. And what as I said earlier, this is about making this injustice visible to create that revolution. Yeah. That kind of summarizes what happened with sugar. And, you know, I started writing articles and I, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to get a platform and it's not easy to do this, it takes time. I mean, there's a lot of grafting, but I got a, a, initially a, um, a front page commentary in the Observer newspaper, which has a lot of impact and reach. And that was about hospital junk food. Um, and then after that, it you know became easier for me. But then it became almost like um, I wouldn't say an addiction. But there were so many things I saw that I wanted to write about. You know, using my observations yeah. um, and even patient examples. But then linking it to the evidence and then writing, you know, combining what I felt you know passionate about, but then using evidence as well. And you br- bring those together, you can you know it, it can be very a very effective mechanism of of changing people's minds mm-hmm. and, and making them aware of of the problem. Absolutely. You've done such a good job with it. There's so much we can talk about, but I think we need to talk about your incredibly book, The P.O.P. Diet. Is that how you say it? Yes, P.O.P. Diet. Yes, yep. that's correct. You wrote this after visiting this small Italian village that has an incredible life expectancy of 90. Can you share a little bit more about this amazing town and how um, it led you creating this Big Fat Fix movie as well as the P.O.P. diet. Yeah, so I must start also by crediting the original idea about P.O.P. was, so I, I, I made a documentary film with, um, I co-produced it with a former Irish, inter- Northern Irish international athlete called Donal O'Neill. Um, Donal had made a couple of documentary films before and we had met and discussed this plan. And then we made, we wrote this book. It was Donal's idea issue about the, he discovered this issue about Piopi, which very few people knew about. And the reason Piopi is interesting, as well as being one of the world's healthiest villages, is there's actually a lot of history in that village and how that ultimately influenced dietary guidelines, which ultimately were flawed because the scientist that was responsible for changing those dietary guidelines, an American scientist called Ansel Keys, he spent six months of the year for 30 years living in this village and conducting his research out of this village. And um, it's, you know, a beautiful fishing town, not particularly affluent, but this community, you know, uh, seemed to have all the ingredients of what it meant to live a long, healthy, happy life. And Ansel Key spent a lot of time here. So we went to this village to try and work out what was it about this particular community. And it's, you know, the population is only about 200 people. It's not many. And what we wanted to do initially when we made The Big Fat Fix and The Pioppy Diet is the book based upon the movie, was to try and find out how do we marry the secrets of this village, speaking to the people, looking at how they ate, how they lived. Um, how do we marry that with the up-to-date totality of evidence and research um, to try and bring together a plan that most people could follow so that they could then also lead, lead these healthy, happy lives. And it involved b- busting a lot of myths out there. Um, so what we discovered, um, there were many different components, but if you look at the dietary side, um, Christina, I mean, first and foremost thing is to say that the, the biggest, I think, problem uh, in the Western diet at the moment is now ultra-processed food. Mm. You know, We're consuming food that is you know, highly palatable, addictive, has high glycemic index, is nutritionally poor, and often, you know, doesn't have much fiber. And that, in fact, in the UK, and I'm sure similar figures in Australia are probably not far off, in the UK, just to put it in perspective, 50% of the average diet now in the UK for adults is ultra-processed food, half 
is ultra-processed. Yes. And for people listening to this, a very simple rule of thumb I tell my patients to understand ultra-processed food, if it comes in a packet and it has five or more ingredients, it's ultra-processed. Mm. Okay. So that, would, that was obviously there was no ultra-processed food. Then they were having you know, oily fish, olive oil, something that spans across the whole of the Mediterranean region. Yeah. And the data does suggest, you know, nutritional research and science is very difficult and to actually show real cause and effect. But there seems to be some consistent evidence that olive oil is beneficial in certainly preventing heart disease and lots of other conditions, you know, lots of vegetables, something that's nutritious. So they had this sort of particular diet plan. Yes, they did eat pasta and bread, but very different to the modern bread yeah. and perhaps pasta that is eaten today and not certainly not in the same quantities. And the issues we're facing in health today and in our diet plan, uh, you know, there was some critique of this book, although it's very well explained, anyone who reads a book, it's quite clear what we're saying, is that the science evolves and we know that foods such as bread and pasta are the ones that have the biggest impact on blood glucose. And anything that raises blood glucose increases the risk of developing something called insulin resistance. You know, it can lead to type 2 diabetes, but it's also the number one risk factor for heart attack. Mm -hmm. So this is really trying to cut out, we tell people to cut out or reduce significantly their starch yeah. and sugar from the diet and embrace these sorts of nutritious foods, including healthy fats. But also we had to bust myths, which I've done separately around things like butter and cheese and coconut oil does not cause heart disease. So we put together a plan that took the best components of their diet, which were likely to be beneficial that helped them you know, have longevity, but then not ignoring the other aspects, which are really crucial to good health. And that means not being sedentary. It doesn't mean going to, there were no gyms in this village. They weren't pumping iron. They were just moving. They were walking everywhere. They were outside. It means um, they also had very little stress in their environment. They had a very strong sense of community. And we know that if you have a strong sense of community and you have even good, intimate, meaningful relationships, that is a protector against stresses that can contribute to many chronic diseases. And I think that's something that we have to think more about in society at the moment because we are losing that. We're losing touch with that sense of community and, uh, and understanding actually how important it is to good health and happiness. So really this is what the book was, was about. So we bust lots of myths, we gave people a plan. And then of course, you know, I must mention this, Christian, you probably know this anyway. The book you know, got quite a lot of attention. I, I made sure because I knew I was going against what government advice was. You know, yeah. the government advice in most Western countries at the moment, it says you put starchy carbohydrates at the base of your diet. And we were saying you cut it out completely. So it's complete opposite of that. But backing it up with, with the, you know, the, the evidence, not cherry picking it, backing it up with what the totality of evidence says. But the book, um, you know, got a lot of um, endorsements from, from some very eminent people, scientists, um, the most important doctor in the UK, arguably the chair of the medical colleges. So I made sure that I asked for them to critique it and, and give endorsements if they felt they, they were happy to. But despite that, and despite the fact that it even got mentioned in the British Parliament, the British diet, the government body, the Dietetics Association came out and um, they critiqued it in a few months later, calling it one of the worst five celebrity diets to avoid. But sadly, Christine, I have no issue debating people. They distorted the message. They said things about the book which weren't true. And for me, though, if anything, I took that as a compliment because when, when in this public health advocacy role that I have, and many of the things I do challenge big industry, not for the purpose of challenging big industry, for actually just trying to tell people the truth, but ultimately sometimes, well, telling people the truth can affect people's profits, is uh, this distortion of the book and the attacks that I faced on it only proved to me that I was on the right track because I couldn't argue 
with actually what we were saying. They had yeah. to distort it and, and, and place it somewhere else. So, you know, we've moved on from there. And then not long after that, I got a, a message from the, one of the most, probably the most high profile supporter or endorser of the book was um, a politician called Tom Watson, who's deputy leader of the Labour Party in the UK. And I had never met Tom before. I mean, I didn't know Tom, although I do know, you know, many politicians I've, I've worked with, you know, over the years on, on health policy issues. And Tom contacted me and he said, listen, you know, it was six months after here, thank you. It was a Christmas time, 2017. And he basically contacted me and said uh, on Twitter, he said, I just want to thank you because I've lost 56 pounds in six months from following your diet plan. He'd always been quite overweight. Six months later, he's sent his type 2 diabetes into remission and then he went public with it. So that was really good because obviously he's a very influential man. But despite that, again, you know, Public Health England, the government agency that also is involved in the dietary advice, um, they, uh, and this was exposed, I'm not, I'm saying anything that isn't, you know, that's confidential, but this was exposed in Sunday Times. They um, had actually tried to do everything they could to stop giving me a platform to speak. They had um, contacted various people that had endorsed the book to ask them to dissociate themselves from it, including the former Secretary for Health and the Mayor of Manchester. Thankfully, all these people stood firm. It's just one of those things I just, uh, that, that I have come to kind of realize and acknowledge that goes, you know, the, the more um, progress you make, um, the more attacks you'll get. There's a saying from Gandhi, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Yeah. So that keeps me going, that inspires me. I love everything that you do and we're going to get more into it because it's so inspiring. But for any, anyone listening into this, it's all about creating your dream life. And of course, what you are doing is out of your comfort zone, I'm sure, a lot. And you are dealing with things that are not so fun and a lot of criticism. What advice have you got for the people listening who really want to, you know, do something that they really stand for, but, you know, are dealing with similar things that you are dealing with? I think if you genuinely, if you're coming from a good place, and you really genuinely believe in something and you know it's important, you just have to keep fighting for it. You know, one of the people that inspired me through his work is an Australian professor of public health called Simon Chapman. Now Simon Chapman um, is probably, if not the most influential man in reducing smoking prevalence in Australia. And he, he writes a paper about his 38 year experience in public health advocacy. And he gives advice about how he started off and where he ended up. But one of the bits of advice, Christina, in this, is he said, you have to grow a rhinoceros hide. Mm -hmm. He says, as soon as your work threatens an industry or an ideological cabal, you know, be prepared that you will be attacked sometimes relentlessly and viciously. And in fact, in the talks I'm giving around Australia at the moment, I, I give this example when I talk about my journey so far in this area. And um, history repeats itself. Mm -hmm. History repeats itself. So you've got to be tough. You've got to have your, you've got to have courage of your convictions. Yeah. That's what I would say. And until you're in it, you don't know how you're going to react. I didn't know how I was how I was going to react. Mm -hmm. But the thing that keeps me going is knowing that this is this is again about um, about truth. It's about transparency. I never forget. This is about my patience. This is not any. It's not about some personal gain in any way. I've I've probably lost many things along the way. Yeah. Um, I've lost things. You know. I've I've lost out financially. I've had threats to my career. Um, you know, really big threats to my career. Um, and I know where, where I'm coming from and why I'm doing this. And it's for you know, the, the greater good. Yeah. So that keeps me going. You know. And that's maybe partly something intrinsic in my personality. Maybe I got this from my parents. Um, but also, I think. The other thing, I, you know, when you stick your head above the parapet, 
And I can look back on this now, and at the time I wasn't sure what was going to happen because you know you, I'm human. You can get things wrong, yeah. right? You say something and Absolutely. you realize, oh, you missed something, or there yeah. maybe there's a much better bit of research that I didn't look at, and I, I you know, I, I accidentally cherry pick something, whatever. Um, you have to be aware of that and would be willing to acknowledge it if there's a mistake and say, listen, and then just move on from it. And luckily, that didn't really happen. But what happened, which was interesting, is once this stuff got out there, I've had so many more friends and supporters than created enemies. And the enemies I've created are, the, are really, if you pardon me putting it in a very um, simplistic terms, the bad guys. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, not really, I'm really not bothered about the bad guys enemies with those guys because that's going to happen yeah. but what's, what's happened people from various um, you know areas of medicine public they have kept me going and people have reinforced what I've been saying if I said yeah. this is you know they said no this is absolutely true and then reinforce even my own uh, opinions and ideas about certain things about health and medicine one person in particular who's going to give an example who emailed me after I'd written something in the British Medical Journal initially about the inappropriate use of heart stents um, so I, I trained as an interventional cardiologist, which is keyhole heart surgery, but which is life-saving when you're having a heart attack, Christina. But about 50% of stents done in America are questionable, potentially inappropriate. And patients are not told that if you don't have a heart attack, putting a stent in will not prevent a heart attack or prolong your life. In fact, most people having the procedure done thought they were having it for that very purpose. So I wrote about this saying, we need to have, have more informed consent, and this is really inappropriate. And, and essentially, it's, it's completely unethical. And out of the blue, I got an email from Sir Richard Thompson. Now, Richard, Sir Richard Thompson at the time was the president of Royal College of Physicians, very important doctor in the UK. And he was um, the former personal physician to the Queen of England for 21 years. And, you know, he's, 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 you know, he's, he's um, a very established, esteemed chap. And, uh, he, and I was really quite, you know, I was a bit sort of blown away. He made me a very positive, very supportive email. Then we started talking about various things, and he has been a very big supporter of mine, and has just told me you must you must keep going with this, you know. And he's had all this experience; he's you know in his eighties now, mm. and um, that that is somebody or these sorts of people that keep inspiring me. Yeah. You know, very courageous medical journal editors, Dr. Fiona Godley, the editor of the British Medical Journal. You know, she's done some amazing work. Really inspired me around this issue about the fact we have this crisis of too much medicine. One estimate suggests prescribed medications now, Christina, are the third most common cause of death after heart disease and cancer. So where I'm coming from at the moment is this realization that we have this issue of not concentrating in, enough on promoting the right kind of lifestyle advice and implementation of that, even with doctors prescribing that kind of thing for patients. At the same time, we're over-medicating people, and it's created this absolute public health catastrophe. So we have the solutions. I know what to do. But again, as I say in my talk, the science alone is not sufficient. Mm -hmm. Opposition from vested interests needs to be overcome, yeah. which means you need to fight for it. Yeah. So inspiring and so much that we could go deep into. <laughs> and for our listeners who I'm going to encourage everyone to get your book because it's very practical. But for those who are listening in terms of how can they, if they can't get your book straight away, what, what can they start doing by living a healthy life? Because it's easy to say not pro processed foods. And um, it was funny because when my son went to a camp first time, he didn't know what the cereal packs were. He'd never seen a cereal pack. Like, we, I'd never given him that. So for me, it's kind of a processed food. Like, of course, we eat some of it, but it's not part of my everyday living. But for those people who, who feel a bit lost in terms of, you know, 
they want to all live to 90. My dream is to actually live to 120. Um, what can people do to kind of just really start living a healthy life? One of the things I do with my patients, because for a lot of people, this is a, a, a life-changing experience um, in terms of having to do things very differently that they've done for many years. And I was one of those people, you know, I was a sugar addict for most of my adult life, um, consuming, you know, probably close to 30 or 40 teaspoons of sugar a day easily with all the different foods I was eating, yeah. whether it's juice in the morning or cereal, chocolate bars and cakes and biscuits and whatever, all that kind of stuff, despite being very active. Um, you know, I still had this belly fat, etc. So I had to go through this process myself when I had read the research to then, you know, I, I follow my own advice. I practice what I preach. I think that's important. So what I would say to people is, if even if it looks hard, just say, okay, I, a lot of people can say, okay, let me just do this for a month, four weeks, you know, do this thing for a month where you're cutting all ultra processed foods, the starch and sugars, eating healthy fats, etc. Do it for a month and see how you feel. And what often happens, more than, more than not, Christina, is people notice such a significant change in their sense of well-being, you know, their energy levels, their sleep, their mental clarity, that that then is a trigger for them to sustain it. Because I'm not going back there again. Yeah. So that's what I would say for, the, to, for them to do is, okay, do this thing, which may sound extreme at the beginning, but say, okay, let me just do this for a month. I can do this for a month, yeah. okay? And that's where, and you see, what's interesting about the Piopi diet and the, and the advice, we call it a 21-day lifestyle plan, is to change the narrative about lifestyle as well, that lifestyle changes actually act like medicines, you know, ideally medicines, with, in fact, medicines without side effects. Um, and the impact on health is very rapid. Uh, the book went to number one in, to my pleasant surprise, it was number one in Holland for five weeks because they got three people, they did a documentary and they experimented on three people, one with type 2 diabetes, a man, um, with type 2, uh, a chap with high blood pressure and heart disease and a lady who'd struggled with her weight for many years even having bariatric surgery. And in 21 days, the lady, um, just from going on my diet plan, lost 10 kilograms and felt better in herself. The chap with type 2 diabetes came off his medications and reversed or sent his type 2 diabetes into remission. Wow. And they filmed this in a very you know, well-made documentary in Holland. And literally the, the day after that, the book was released in the Dutch version. And it just was, it went to number one for five weeks. Now it got knocked off the top of number one because the Dutch Nutrition Council then weighed in five weeks later and unfortunately made some distorted claims about the book. But anyway, the point was, it, it was clearly very powerful to, for, that, for people to see that because yeah. that's actually what happens. So I think people need to try it and then they'll know. And of course it may not work for everybody, but you know, they're definitely gonna make themselves healthier just by cutting out the ultra processed foods from their diet. And then thinking about other things. So, you know, something I've done relatively recently is I uh, started to meditate. So I've got a, an app called, I just downloaded an app called Calm that was recommended to me. It's again, it's a very powerful intervention. You just got to be disciplined at the beginning and say, okay, you know, do the 10 minutes and build it up to 20 or 30. And I do that every morning. And I actually find it energizes me. And the data there on the impact of meditation on health and inflammatory markers is, is very strong. So I think people need to start, you know, and people know if they're stressed. You don't need to measure it. If you feel it, then you need to do something about it. So for anyone listening and who wants you to start straight away, give because I know you share some great recipes and meal plans in your book, but for those who do not have the book yet, just give me like your perfect kind of meal for the day. Or, oh, wow. You know. Okay, one of the, the dishes I make, which I think most people, you know, if they eat fish, they'll enjoy, is a mixed grill of fish. So it's a recipe I took from some Mediterranean cookbook, then I, I changed it around a bit and made it my own. 
Um, but essentially, and it's very simple actually, is you get you know some maybe whatever seafood you like, a couple of two two different types of fish. I use a bit of salmon, maybe some cod, um, some prawns in yeah. there, and then I basically add in uh, the sauce is just made of extra virgin olive oil and lemon, so 50-50, yeah. uh, salt and pepper, anchovies. You can throw some garlic in there as well, capers. Yeah. I love spice, so I put a bit of chili in there as well. Mm -hmm. And the vegetables that go with it, I often just make some green beans and then put that, so put it all in a big baking tray, some green beans. You can put some cauliflower in there or some broccoli or whatever else. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with some sweet potato either. You can put some sweet potato in there. And then I just bake it for 30 minutes. And um, you know, that's the kind of my quick, when I, you know, I don't spend lots of time cooking, it's very quick to make, you just stick it in there. Absolutely delicious, really good. And it's really healthy. You've got omega-3, you've got olive oil, you know, you've got stuff from your vegetables, you've got vitamins, it's protein. It's a really healthy dish really, and really enjoyable, really tasty. Going back a little bit, what frustrates you the most about the food and drink industry today? I think they're aggressive marketing to children. Yeah. That's, I think, the biggest gross sort of injustice that's happening at the moment because they target the most vulnerable members of society yeah. uh, with junk food. Um, sugary drinks has been a big issue for a long time. So they need to really stop doing that now. They are profit-making businesses and I've got no issue with that. They've got a, a fiduciary and legal obligation to make profit for their shareholders. But the problem is a, is a failure of regulate, regulations. Mm. You know, the regulatory the capture these industries have managed to get through that you've, you know, processed food, ultra-processed food is unavoidable. For example, in, in one hospital I worked at in London, this is similar, I found it in other hospitals, there were contracts created that ensured that bed-bound patients, you couldn't even come to the shop, were brought to their bedside, packets of crisps, Coca-Cola, all that kind of stuff. There were legal contracts that were there. And the only way we can stop that is when the contract runs out, then the chief executive says, okay, no more. This is, this is how bad it's become. How did we allow this to happen? How do we allow this to happen? I was going on ward rounds with people, you know, patients who had heart attacks, and literally, you know, they had cans of coke there. And for the patient, they think, well, if the hospital's serving it, it must be fine. It can't be that bad, right? So it's a failure of regulation that we really need to. And who is responsible for that? Ultimately, it's the politicians. Mm -hmm. We all have a responsibility to play, but when it's population health, um, we call it the hierarchy of effectiveness, making the food environment healthier. The default choice is healthy food is going to have the biggest impact because most of our food choices are determined by our food environment. Mm. So unless we improve the food environment, Christian, it doesn't matter how much education you give, even if people can be very disciplined for a certain amount of time, they're likely for, to fall off the wagon if we don't get the food environment sorted. And I, I write this in the first chapter of my book, I say, listen, this is all the science about what you can do for your individual health, but ultimately, we're not really gonna help the population and therefore ourselves, because we're not living, we don't live in cocoons, if we sort the, the problems out for, for everybody, then we individually benefit as well because we also use the same services. We use hospitals and all that yeah. kind of thing. So this podcast is all about creating your dream life and we, all the guests are um, coming here to, to share their stories, to inspire people to do what they love. And you're working something you're really passionate about. It's clearly uh, clear to us and you're generating positive change and inspiring others. In what way do you feel like you're living your dream life now? Do you feel like you're living it while you're doing all these tough, I guess, you know, you're creating a movement and you're creating change, which is obviously very challenging, but it's also very positive. So do you feel like you're living your dream life? I have an understanding in my mind that there are a number of components to feeling content and happy. And um, 
there is a, a, a psychologist, a well-known professor of psychology called Martin Seligman, um, you may you may have heard of. And uh, there's a mnemonic which I uh, often refer to when I, when I talk to people about this called uh, PERMA, P-E-R-M-A. So he writes about the fact you need all of these different things, ideally in an abundance to be happy. And P is positive emotion. So that's doing things that you just enjoy, yeah. essentially. E is engagement. And that can be just uh, something that where you're completely absorbed and focused that everything else goes out the window, like reading a book and being yeah. absorbed in a book. R is relationships. Yeah. Um, M is meaning, doing something meaningful, yeah. which is clearly for me, this is something that is meaningful and an accomplishment, also seeing some success with the things that you do. Uh, but in all of that, I think, you know, uh, I read another very interesting book. I'm plugging all these books, but they're great books. I love books, so Ta this is Tal perfect. Tal Ben-Shahar. Um, again, he's a, a Harvard professor, uh, has a, a course, I think the most popular course in Harvard on being happy. And he's written a book called Happier. And he says that nothing is the most, I think the single most important factor for happiness is, is meaningful relationships. So I'm very lucky and fortunate, Christina, that I have a lot of good family and friends around me. That gives me a lot of emotional support. But ultimately what he says is that the most, the single most important factor or determinant of happiness is, is your intimate relationships. And that, as you know, is still a, an issue in society at the moment. We have divorce rates up to 50%. I myself am I'm divorced from, you know, eight years ago, amicably, luckily. But, you know, it's, I know it's a problem. It's an issue. You'll never achieve perfection. But I can't complain, you know. You know, I've got a roof over my head. I've got, you know, enough finances to be able to enjoy doing what I'm doing and be passionate and be this public health advocate. I have very supportive parents and friends around me, so uh, I can't complain. But yeah, of course, there are certain things I'd still want to try and strive for yeah. to, to, you know, make myself have the dream, dream life. Yeah. And, and on that, actually, the other thing I've learned, one of my uh, most inspirational figures in terms of resilience and character is my mother. My mother sadly passed away a few months ago. Every day, she would always send me something positive in the morning through a WhatsApp message. And one of the things she would always say is nothing is permanent in this world. You know, live in the present. Things are constantly changing. Yeah. You know, and I always keep thinking about that when things are going, going bad or whatever. This time will pass. Don't get so absorbed into the negativity of certain situations. You can't, there are certain things you cannot control. Yeah. It's such a good one because in, actually my, in my book, I have a chapter about quotes because I think quotes like that quote is so important when you're in the middle of something and actually things change and evolve and what is clear today might be changing tomorrow and it be it's just constantly changing and i think that's the beauty of being alive and and Absolutely. um and i i, I um, through the challenging times and we all have them like it doesn't matter if you create your perfect life or your dream life there's always challenges and i think the bigger the dreams and you are a perfect example of this is that the bigger the dreams the bigger challenges hey but it's something that really helps me uh, with challenges is gratitude every morning when i come down the stairs um, and especially if i have a day that is i know it's going to be very full and challenging i always say lucky me to be here to be able to to do that so have you got any practice of gratitude in your life i thank my patients yeah. every time they come and see me with whatever issues, I tell them that thank you for sharing your, your story with me. I'm obviously here to help you. And I tell them that I learn from each and every one of my patients, yeah. everyone that comes to me. I'm learning something from them. We forget that as doctors, actually. Yeah. But we are. We're taking, and, and I think I give gratitude to my patients. So because we're all human, do you have any guilty food pleasures that you can share with us? Absolutely, yes. 
I will give you a bit of background on this yes. to try and explain what the guilty food pleasure is yes. now or occasionally. So uh, 18 years ago, I uh, actually spent two months in Sydney. I was a finally a medical student. We were allowed to go for four months around the world. I did two months in Delhi in India and then two months in Sydney. And it was most amazing, I look back, time of my life. It was really interesting and really fun. And it was beautiful weather and it was during the summer here. But before I came to Sydney, I was in India. And this is in my days when I did have, in retrospect, quite a lot of sugar. And uh, there was, there's a store in India um, that sells ice cream and they had the best strawberry ice cream in the world. <laughs> and I liked this ice cream so much, Christina, that every single day um, I would go for, I was staying with my uncle and my cousin who got quite frustrated taking me to this ice cream joint so often that I even got to the point where every day I would even take one of these three-wheeler auto rickshaws in India, these, you know, yeah. I don't know what you, what you call them over here. Um, uh, tuk 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 tuk. Yeah, tuk tuk, yeah. Um, that I would go to this place, this called Nerula's, and I would always order the same thing and had it every day. It was a triple, um, uh, triple sundae. It was two scoops of ice cream, one chocolate with lots of hot fudge sauce on it and whipped cream and nuts. And I had that every single day for about two months. And then I look for, I, I repeated something similar when I came to Australia. But when I quit sugar, I pretty much didn't have much dessert. So very occasionally now, I will still have, you know, but I don't worry about it much. I'll still have a really nice gelato and that kind of thing. And I'm known as the kind of anti-sugar campaigner, but I've said that, you know, that is nothing wrong with having the occasional treat. And I'm, you know, I'll have this very occasionally. I'm quite good at exercising self-control, but yeah, you know, sometimes like, you know. And, and even more if it's in a social environment, yeah. you know, um, I think it's fine. Yeah. From a holiday or vacation or whatever, yeah. you know. I remember when we met, we met over a dinner and everyone was sharing their dreams. I think it's a bit sad that we as adults all all of a sudden forget to dream and we you know we get in, we get busy by working and studying or or all of a sudden we're in this treadmill and it just just keeps going and we don't actually take the time to dream. So that's why I wrote a book to uh, inspire people to actually take some time to dream. And I remember uh, specifically that night because you had a very big dream. You know, it was. I don't know if you, if I say it right, but it was basically, you know, changing the way people eat and the, instead of coming for your heart attack, preventing the heart attack. Yes. I was so inspired by that because it's something that you're doing for the betterment of other people. And I would love to hear more than one dream from you because I think that would be so inspiring, but it don't have to be big like that. But um, what would you do if you couldn't fail, if you had? all the resources and knowledge and the money and the um, energy to do anything in the world, what would you do? If I had all these resources, clearly I would I would do whatever I could to dramatically, because we know we can get people's health improved in a very short space of time. Yeah. So globally, I would you know make sure that everybody has access to safe, affordable, healthy foods. You know, yeah. I think that would be probably the most important thing I would do yeah. um, if I had all those resources. Yeah. Um, and uh, on a personal level, is there something for my own personal self-indulgence? Yeah. Whatever you want. There's of... no rules with dreaming. That's the beauty of dreaming because it could be anything. Um, okay. If it was on a personal level, I would probably get all my favorite rock bands together to organize a concert. And maybe actually through that concert, we'd raise money to, you know, uh, put money into uh, helping people improve their health. You know, maybe getting rid of junk food in hospitals or, or doing something with with, with uh, helping people who, who haven't got access to affordable food. But from a personal level, yeah, get all my favorite rock bands together, meet all these people 
who inspire me, you know, who I, their music who I love. Um, and uh, yeah, that would be, and organize a concert like that would be great. Wow, that's an inspiring dream. <laughs> I haven't thought of that. There's one band, um, which I will name, that, um, you know, I, I've uh, loved listening to their music because it's not just that great music, but their lyrics are very, very deep. Um, and I can even name one specific thing, which I think kind of reflects back, just, just come to my mind about the a lot of the problems we have in society today. Um, it's Pearl Jam. They're an American rock band. You know, I love their music. I've seen them in concert four times. And of course, if I've ever had the opportunity, if my bucket list would be to meet them and probably Eddie Vedder, the lead singer. But there's a, a song that Eddie Vedder uh, sung called Society. And it was based on a movie called Into the Wild, which is a true story about a boy that kind of decides to leave his family. He has a very affluent background. I think he's going off to university, I think Harvard. And he just is just fed up with the with the system and this kind of um, approach to just you know people gaining uh, the sort of the um, money being God etc and just chasing the big buck, yeah. and uh, he goes into the wild to try and just get away from it all. And the song's called Society, um, and Eddie Vedder says, uh, and I love this line. He says, "We have agreed, as in a greed, for which we have agreed. Society, I hope you're not lonely without me." So a lot of the problems we have right now to explain even this issue with population health is this, um, you know, uh, really people just accumulating more and more wealth for the purposes of just having more individual wealth, but at the expense and deceiving and misleading people, which may be the food industry, the drug in industry, you know, at, at the expense of people's health. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So thinking back of your journey so far, you've achieved so many things already. What would you say has been the biggest obstacle or challenge you faced? Because I know you had lots of them. And how did you overcome it? The one that comes to mind, Christina, is in at the beginning of my journey, I felt I had kind of, um, I put the jigsaw together on what was really at the root cause of this obesity epidemic. And, and ultimately, it's been our obsession with low in cholesterol and all these industries that developed and the money that's generated from fear of cholesterol, reduced fat, food industry, drug industry, statin drugs, which are estimated to um, the total sales of, of which, which is the most prescribed drug in the world, will reach about one um, trillion US dollars by 2020. So I wrote an editorial where I said these drugs have been overprescribed to millions of people and we've, the side effects are much higher than what we've been told from the published research which is industry sponsored and et cetera, et cetera. And um, there was a professor who was a big statin researcher that took, you know, uh, um, who took real offense at this. He said this was wrong. And um, myself and another Harvard researcher who'd written coincidentally in a separate paper had both said the same thing, that side effects were about 20% of patients. So this chap came out and um, basically suggested there was an error. And there wasn't really an error. There was a slight caveat we should have probably put into the into that particular reference. but. Uh, the side effects certainly are much higher than what's published and it affects many people. Um, and he basically said that what I had done and what John Abramson, the other uh, doctor who had written a, a separate paper from Harvard had done, uh, was was essentially, um, you know, uh, could result in many deaths because people are going to get scared uh, and they're going to stop their statin because it had a lot of media uh, pick up these, these articles we'd written. And at the time, although in my heart I knew there was something not quite right going on, this kind of attack, um, the editor of the BMJ decided under pressure to send our articles for independent review because he said we should they should be retracted. Now, as from a doctor's point of view, that kind of stuff could be career destroying. You know, if you write something, and I was actually quite I was doing very well in my you know in my advocacy up to that point. But interestingly, I wasn't so bothered about myself. I was like, well, okay, fine. If I'm knocked off my perch, 
I'm not going to be able to do the important stuff to help that population health. I was thinking like that more yeah. than about myself. Yeah. But that was a very challenging time because um, we were basically on trial for two months. And luckily, everything came out in our favor, 6-0. There was no call for retraction, everything. And in fact, anything inspired me to do more on this and yeah. cover more. And more stuff is coming out and emerging, and we, we're getting there. But I think that probably was the most challenging time for me. Um, but if anything, it made me stronger. And uh, when I look back on it, I think actually it was probably a good thing because it drew out something that then made me investigate this further. You know, it's funny, I always talk, there's always a silver lining in everything. And this is good for our listeners who, who are going through a tough time and there's always something positive in the negative. You know, a lot of things happen in life that, we, as I said earlier, we can't control. And at the time, it feels really bad, whether even it's the end of a relationship. You know, people, everybody goes through heartbreak at some point in their life. I've, I've also had my fair share. But, you know, when one door closes, others open. And always yeah. remember that. So we've already spoken a little bit about this. But in addition to diet and food, another modern day epidemic that seems to be crazy in our world is that many people feel that they're living out of balance with everything you are doing for the world. How do you manage to find balance? Because the doctors, um, what I'm reading, but obviously you're much, much closer to it, but they, their doctors seem to be living a very stressful life. Yeah, it, so there's something called, we call it compassion fatigue and, and burnout. Yeah. Burnout leads to compassion fatigue, which is a vicious cycle and not something you want as a doctor. No. Because if you're more stressed and tired, you're going to not be able to give as much compassion that you should be giving to your patients. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 it's challenging. Probably for me, one of the most challenging things personally yeah. um, is trying to fit in everything and trying to get that balance right. And uh, I'm constantly striving for it, yeah. but I'm not achieving it necessarily. I'm doing my best. Um, and part of that is because I, I feel I've taken on a duty and responsibility. Yeah. And it also, and you, I'm sure you're the same, Christina, it's difficult to say no, and you don't, you know, and you have to, you have competing priorities. Yeah. You know, that's the problem. So um, competing priorities and, uh, uh, um, and, and being sort of uh, often overstretched at times so I just have to um, do my best to make sure that I'm getting... So the one thing, I, I'm very uh, high functional. I've always been like that. You know, I'm an early riser. I get stuff done in the morning. I get to the, you know, I used to go to the gym, do a 5K run, and then I'd be in the operating theater and doing coronary angiograms for the next eight hours, you know, and I'd still be energized. And I, you know, and I still come back and cook food for myself. That's what, what I'm like. But if I don't get enough rest, then that I find, I find it difficult. So the main thing for me is I can do every, all of this stuff if I get enough rest. Yeah. So getting enough rest is a problem and getting enough sleep, productive sleep. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm still working. If there's one thing that I could change in my life personally that I'm not doing uh, good enough on is getting enough sleep. Problem for a lot of people, me included sometimes, but um, the morning, um, almost every guest that I've had so far, talking about the morning how important it is and I really do think um, if we can get up early we we, yeah. we um, yeah. achieve so much more and and on that note as Christian as well because of this work that I do and I was warned about this years ago saying this is going to completely take over your life I haven't really had a proper holiday I'm not whinging or complaining about it it's just the way things are but where I've completely been able to switch off because even when I've been away I've either been writing a book or something's come up through the media or whatever else so I've, having time to have complete vacation where I'm switching off from the outside yeah. world but I think we have to be more proactive about it. You know, it means also, um, and this is something I'm working on, is is also switching off from social media for long periods of time. Yeah. You know, I don't think they're good for, good for our brain. I think we're overdosing on it. Twitter yeah. and Facebook and Instagram, we're all overdosing on it. Yeah. Um, what the right balance is, I don't know. But at the moment, we're definitely in an imbalance. I couldn't agree more. 
me included. It's so easy to get um, addicted, especially if you ins- you know you're consuming inspiring things. Yeah. But that can you think that so- if you don't do something, then you know somebody's missing out, and yeah. you need to do it now. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I would love to finish off by asking you a few quick questions that I know our listeners would love to hear your answer. I think you've already spoken about this, but maybe that was in the past. I don't know if this is still relevant. Do you have any particular morning routine to set you up for a product, productive day? So you talked about you know the running, but is there something specifically you're doing now? The first thing I do after I wake up actually is um, I will do this meditation usually for 20 or 30 minutes if I yeah. can. The deep breathing definitely helps. Good start to the day. Um, and also for me, uh, one of the other advantages of, of being active or doing exercise, and I'll go to the gym quite often or I'll go for a long walk, I find that my creativity of my mind is best when I'm doing that. Yeah. So I I do it obviously for, for physical health purposes, but actually for my writing purposes, yeah. for inspiring me to just, or some thought comes and I think, oh, that, that idea, that makes sense now. You know, I can articulate something which I wasn't, I was struggling to articulate in, in, in the, in the, in a very powerful way, the, those ideas come to me when I'm in the gym in the morning. And actually getting an early night, yeah. you know. I'm a morning person. My mind is most active in the morning. I write best in the morning. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I wake up often about half four or five o'clock. Yeah. Most days of the week. I love my morning so much that I'm happy to sacrifice the night. There's so much we can do at night, but I actually prefer my morning so much. Uh, you get so much more done, so I completely get that. I don't know if you have a favorite Kiki K product uh, or do you have any station product? Um, I know that doctors are really well known for their amazing handwriting. <laughs> do you do any handwriting or, or do you have any specific product that you love? I make lots of notes, notebooks. Yeah. You know, uh, my, when I have these ideas and stuff, I, my, my desk at home is just is, is, a, is a bit of a mess, I'll be honest. Um, but I just have, I love just writing. Yeah. I, as, you know, I will type stuff up when I want to do an article, but my original ideas always come from notes and writing in notebooks. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Including one you gave me. Yeah. What's your favorite book and why? You've mentioned quite a few books already, but have you got one that comes to mind that's your favorite? And if yes, why? Happier by Tal Ben-Shahar. I keep it by my bedside. Great book. Inspiring. Yeah. Loads of positive messages and interesting stories. That's one of them. Um, uh, yeah, I think yeah, that's one of them. Uh, one of the older ones, which I think was very good, um, was which I read was How to Win Friends and Influence People, mm-hmm. which is a great book. Um, more recently, uh, I, I find human relationships very interesting. Yeah. And there's a book I read called The Five Love Languages by Yeah, Alan I love Chapman. that. It's really, uh, really good. And it really makes you think. I give that to quite a few of my friends and sometimes yeah. it's not well <laughs> perceived, but I think it's a great book. There's a lot of good resource there to help people in their relationships, but also helps you understand yourself and makes you think about yourself a little bit more as well. Yeah. You know, what is it that keeps your emotional love tank full, yeah. which we all want to keep full, but yeah. maybe we don't. We need to kind of think about that a bit more and understand ourselves. And yeah. that book is very good for that. So what's next for you? So I'm currently trying to finish my second book, yeah. which will kind of be the, a little bit more of the journey, going through the science uh, of, of uh, you know, uh, things like cholesterol and statins and explaining things for people that they can, can empower them as individuals, as patients, you know, to really take their health back. Yeah. So I'm working on that at the moment, trying to really just change the healthcare system so that you know, I spoke in the European Parliament last year and I said that the situation has got so dire within medicine at the moment that honest doctors can no longer practice honest medicine. 
And I explain that because of the research being um, influenced or corrupted by industry and then doctors are therefore making decisions for patients based upon bias and corrupted information. So we can improve that system. And I, my, for me now, um, I think there are so many players in this field about the, in, in terms of food. And I think the ultra processed food, I think that's going to be the next big thing that we concentrate on. And that I think will have the biggest impact on improving health. And it, and it moves away from this stuff about, you know, vegetarian versus carnivore versus vegan, whatever else. I think most of us could agree that ultra processed food is a problem and we all need to go back to cooking more, etc. I believe we're going to win that battle. And there are lots of other players in that. For me, the, the harder battle is making sure that we can improve um, transparency in medicine, both within the research that we use to make decisions, but also how that research is translated for patients in keeping with their preferences and values so we can improve outcomes for them as individuals, but also across the board. And I've got a lot of work to do there and advocacy work to do there. And that's probably what I'm going to push more than anything else now. That is so inspiring. And for anyone who's listening, I think we're all very inspired to, to do better in the world because of everything that you're doing. If you could go back to your younger self, say when you were in your late teens, what advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? I don't think I would do anything different, Christina. No, I think uh, that who I've become now has been shaped by all the experiences I've had. I don't think I'd change any of those experiences or I wouldn't advise myself to do anything different. I would just say, keep going as you are. Perfect way of ending, because I think um, we need to go through the challenges to become who we are and uh, we don't become better by just having it perfect from day one. So what a great way of ending. Thank you first for what you're doing to the world. It's incredibly inspiring and um, I cannot wait to see what you achieve because I know that that will be profound and, and make a huge difference. Delighted to be here and thank you for, for hosting me. And uh, also if in terms of if people are interested in particularly following my work and stuff, a lot of the stuff now I post on my Facebook, it's an open yeah. public feed so they can follow me, Dr. Asim Hotra. And then if they're on Twitter, it's at Dr. Asim Hotra and Instagram is Lifestyle Medicine Doctor. So if they want to keep up to stuff that I'm writing about and they can yeah but don't spend too much time on social media <laughs> no it's good to to know where we can be inspired and, and also i know that a lot of our listeners wants to make a difference so if they're interested in this field they can also get in touch to see if they can help you in any way we will list that in the show notes so okay. we can make sure that we can support you but thank you so much and best wishes for making i think the most important change that we need right now so thank you Wow, I hope you loved this episode as much as I did. I just love Dr. Asim's passion for fighting for the change he really believes in, no matter what obstacles or challenges he has to face. And I loved hearing all his knowledge and ideas on how we can begin living a happier and healthier lives, especially as we enter another new year. If you are interested in reading the Piopi Diet or learning more about Dr. Asim, and his work, we have provided links in the show notes, so be sure to check them out. And don't forget, if you have been inspired to dream big or make any positive changes after hearing this episode, I would love you to join my Facebook group for your Dream Life podcast so you can share and learn with a group of like-minded dreamers. If you are looking to make 2021 your best year yet, don't forget there are still some dates left for my free online workshop as well. And the doors to your Dream Life Starts Here digital course is now open. If you are ready to start living your dream life and really making it happen this year, please join me. So many of you are telling me that you're missing a support group. So if you join my course, you certainly will have that and I will be, source, and I will be supporting you as well. 
You will find the links to my Facebook group, my digital course, and the workshop all in the show notes. I am so excited about all the guests I have lined up this year. So please remember to subscribe so you don't miss any. And don't forget to tell us what you thought by leaving us a review. I love hearing from you and I'm so grateful for the comments. So thank you. If you want to see more of what's happening in my world, you can always follow me on Instagram at Christina Kiki K. I truly hope 2021 is the year you chase your dreams and it's a wonderful year for you all. Until next time, don't forget to dream big. I'll see you next week.